Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Welcome back. It's a fairly quiet day as I'm writing this, at least right now. We have no internet, so I can't do any of my freelance work, which means I have time to work on podcast episodes instead. I don't like to use my phone as a hotspot for an extended period of time, so I'm using it for short bursts. But that doesn't help me clean up a SharePoint filing system. If it weren't for the pandemic, I'd go to a coffee shop or the library. Instead, I'm enjoying the quiet at my parents' house while my mom and daughter have gone to pick up hand-me-down Legos from a friend, and while my dad explores why the sprayer in my kitchen sink isn't working properly. Today, we start the last of the three great Greek tragedians, Euripides. A remarkable 18 of his 95 plays still survive, and we'll see that he was the happiest of the tragedians. His plays are... they're something. Actually, I really do like his plays. His characters are more complex than many of the characters that we see in Aeschylus or Sophocles, or at least in the early plays of Sophocles. Uh, Euripides was born sometime between 485 and 480 BCE. His family had money, and he was raised as an active member in the cult of Apollo. But like many a recovering Catholic, that devotion did not continue into adulthood, and we'll see some of his take on religion as we read his plays. He tried to be an actor, but couldn't project well enough to be heard in the back row, and that's impressive because most Greek amphitheaters have amazing acoustics. Clearly, he was not performing at Epidavros. Instead, Euripides turned to writing. And today, some of his plays are the most famous of the Greek tragedies. Medea, anyone? That's him. Um, but in his lifetime, they, they weren't very well received. He only won four prizes. So while my introductions for the plays of Aeschylus and Sophocles almost always included a comment about what prize they won... That won't be happening for Euripides. He's one of those artists who became appreciated after his death. Um, Euripides himself became so frustrated with his lack of success that he left Athens for Macedonia in 408 BCE and died a year or two later. Alcestis is the oldest surviving play by Euripides. It premiered in 438 BCE at Dionysia, where it won second prize, so not bad. Um, I am working from the Paul Roche translation from 1974. You, as usual, can use whatever translation is handy for you, and you shouldn't have any trouble finding a translation online or to check out as an ebook if you've got, you know, Hoopla or Overdrive or one of those many uh, things that you should have access to through your public library. Uh, the cast is fairly small. The named characters include Apollo, Death, and Heracles, all of whom are names you should be familiar with. Um, then we have Admetus, who is the king of Thessaly, his wife, the title character Alcestis, and their son Eumelus. We also have Furies, who is Admetus' father. Um, there are a few servants with lines and the typical assortment of non-speaking extras. And the chorus is made up of the elders of Phyre, um, so this part of Thessaly. Um, and the setting is outside of Admetus's palace. And I, I won't give any further background here because it, the prologue tells you pretty much everything you need to know. So we'll take a short break here and come back to go over a summary of the play. <laughs> 
Apollo enters and provides all of the background we need to understand what's come, what's to happen in this play. You see, Apollo was, understandably, upset when Zeus killed his son Asclepius. So in revenge, Apollo killed the Cyclops who made Zeus's thunderbolts. And you'll just remember this: these are a different group of Cyclops than we'll see when we read the Odyssey. These are the ones we saw in Hesiod's Theogony. Um, killing the Cyclops, of course, made Zeus mad. So he punished Apollo by making him go and work for Admetus. But Admetus is such a nice guy. He's a great host. Even though it was really demeaning to be a servant to a mortal, Apollo kind of enjoyed his time. Um, But then um, Admetus got sick. Um, Obviously, you know, being a mortal and all. And Apollo wanted to reward him for being such a good boss. So he convinced the fates to spare him. But the fates, of course, granted this wish on one condition. Someone needed to take Admetus's place. If he wasn't going to die at his appointed time, someone else would have to. And Admetus asked everyone. I mean, his parents were old, so they should be willing to die. But no, no, they weren't. Um, finally, one person volunteered, and that was Admetus's wife, Alcestis. And now that time has come. Alcestis is dying. And Apollo wants nothing to do with it, so he's out of here. Before he's able to exit, Death steps out of the shadows. He, oh, this would be a great role to play. No reason that Death has to be played by a man. And honestly, in this play, I'd much rather play Death than play Alcestis. Um, oh, you know who would be great to play Death in this play? Ian McKellen. Or Jeremy Irons. Can you see what I mean? Death steps out of the shadows, but he's not all scary. He's just smooth and cool and sees and knows everything. And he speaks his mind. He calls Apollo out for causing Alcestis's death, but not having the nerve to stick around and see it through. Apollo tells Death that he won't win. Someone is coming who will snatch Alcestis from Death's clutches. And you'll remember Apollo has the gift of prophecy, so um, he does actually know what he's talking about. Anyway. Uh, Apollo exits. Death rolls his eyes and shakes his head. After all, there is no escaping death. And death exits too. The chorus enters and sings a lament. They know the queen is dying and they sing of their grief and the grief of Admetus. A maid enters. She tells the chorus that the queen isn't dead yet, but she's also not not dead either. She's dying. The funeral has been arranged. All is prepared. The maid then goes on to describe how Alcestis has spent her last day. She took a bath and dressed herself in her best clothes and jewelry. She prayed to Hestia, asking for a good wife for her son and a good husband for her daughter, asking that they have long lives unlike their mother and that they find happiness again. She prayed at every altar in the house, and it wasn't until she was done with these rites that she ran to her room, threw herself on the bed, and cried. Once she'd cried her fill, she went into a bit of a cycle. Get up, catch breath, throw self onto bed, wail, repeat. Get up, catch breath, throw self onto bed, wail, get up. Anyway. Um, the children cried with her, and she held them and said goodbye. And she said goodbye to all of the silver- serving women, taking time for each of them. And, well, that's all still going on because... Alcestis is such a good person. If it had been Admetus, he would have just died and been done with it without a thought for anyone else. Um, But of course, now that Alcestis is dying, he feels bad and is begging her not to. 
after speaking for a few pages, the maid says she'll go inside and announce that the chorus is there to say goodbye to Alcestis, and she exits. The chorus sings of how they wish there were some way that Alcestis could be spared in the same way Admetus was. Alcestis, Admetus, and Eumelus enter, and what the maid had described continues. Um, Admetus begs Alcestis not to die, and she has a very long death scene in which she says goodbye to her husband and her children, and it, it really is a beautiful scene. Um, oh, but at the end, she makes Admetus vow that he's never going to remarry, and then she dies. In a truly, truly heartbreaking moment, the first speech after her death is Eumelus, the little boy, um, crying about how he, he doesn't have a mother anymore and what what is what is his life going to be like? How is he going to live not not having mommy? And it's it's very sweet. Um, and once Eumelus is done speaking, Admetus makes the funeral arrangements. The chorus sings a dirge as Alcestis's body is carried off stage, followed by Admetus, Eumelus, and all of the extras. Heracles then enters, and yes, that Heracles, the one you know, sort of. I mean, it's him, but not exactly if you've seen him before. He's the hero but he's also a comic character at this point in Greek theater so he's not doing a strong man routine as much as he's doing a comic routine think Terry Crews who would be perfect to play Heracles and now that is who I have cast in my head and probably forever after that is who I will visualize when I read Heracles in any of these plays Heracles says that he's working on one of his labors the one with the horses of Diomedes um the chorus warns him that that the horses like to eat people and Heracles shrugs and says eh, he'll figure it out but since he was passing by he had to stop and see Admetus because as you'll recall from the prologue he's just such a nice guy and he's a great host Admetus enters and greets Heracles Heracles notices that Admetus is clearly in mourning he's shaved his head he's wearing mourning garb Admetus insists that it, it's no big deal. Yeah, he has to go and bury someone dear to him, but it's no one you know, just someone from town. Heracles asks if it's the children or Alcestis, and Admetus answers by saying that they're all still inside, which isn't exactly a lie. Um, and Heracles thinks this is fishy. I, he knows about the pact that Apollo arranged, but Admetus insists that everyone in his household is fine, and he even goes so far as to invite Heracles to stay. Heracles is convinced and accepts the invitation. They exit. The chorus sings a song in praise of Admetus because he's such a great host. The next scene is the funeral procession. Furies, Admetus's father, shows up to pay his respects, and it goes about as well as you would expect, given that Furies wasn't willing to take Admetus's place in death, and that's how Acalstus wound up being the one to die. All of this ignoring, of course, the fact that Admetus could have just died himself. They argue and exit, and the chorus sings a dirge as they go. The butler enters. He did it! No. Wait, wrong show. He speaks of how Heracles is really enjoying himself. He's drinking them out of house and home, and while Admetus is a great host, Heracles isn't being a very good guest. The servants are sad. They want to mourn. But they can't because Heracles is there. Heracles enters, and just as the butler had described, he's drunk. He gives the butler a hard time. Everyone is so glum, which doesn't make sense if the dead person is a member of the household, and it makes it just not as much fun to hang out here. The butler finally snaps and tells Heracles exactly who it is who died. Heracles is 
appalled. He's appalled to learn that Admetus lied to him, and he's mortified that he has been such a terrible guest in a house that was in mourning. But of course, Admetus had taken him in. Oh, he's such a nice guy and a great host. Heracles decides that he's going to reward him. He's going to go and steal Alcestis back from death. He exits. Admetus and the train of mourners enter. Admetus laments the death of Alcestis, and the chorus is super helpful, crying and lamenting along with him. When again, she only died because he chose not to die himself. After much lamentation, the chorus sings another song about how one simply can't be raised from the dead. At the end of the song, Heracles enters, leading a veiled woman on stage. He tells Admetus, this woman is going to be his new wife. Admetus tells Heracles that he promised Alcestis that he would never remarry. Heracles insists, and Admetus protests, and Heracles insists, and Admetus protests, and Heracles insists, and Admetus finally consents because that's what a good host does for his friends. You know, when he bring, your guest brings you a bride, you marry her. Of course, Heracles then reveals that this new bride is none other than Alcestis herself, brought back from the dead. There is one little catch. Since the funeral rites had already been performed, she needs to be, well, unconsecrated from death. And the way she does that is by not speaking for three days. Everyone rejoices, and the play ends. We'll be back in a minute to talk about it. Oh, Euripides. <laughs> this is a great starting point for the complexity of his plays. Alcestis isn't exactly a tragedy, but it isn't exactly a comedy either. The way plays were originally presented at the festivals was that there would be three tragedies and then a short comic satyr play, so-called because the chorus was made up of satyrs. Um, and Aeschylus made those three tragedies tell a single story, but Sophocles and Euripides didn't. Alcestis took the place of that satyr play. It was the fourth play, not one of the three. Um, but it clearly isn't a satyr play. Um, there are no satyrs. And it's not a comedy. Um, but so like some of Shakespeare's plays, it really, it really is best called a problem play. Um, there are two themes that I want to touch on in, in this episode. Um, the first is something that was very different in ancient Greece than in the world today, and especially in the world given the ongoing pandemic. You might have noticed I kept saying the same thing about Admetus. He's such a nice guy and such a great host. The relationship between hosts and guests was different than today, which um, makes some of Admetus's behavior unsettling and um that's ignoring the whole convincing your wife to take your place in death line. Um, so it, in ancient Greece, hospitality was one of the highest virtues. To, to turn someone away from your house, mm, that someone might be a god, you know. Zeus, Zeus protect, protects guests. So being a good host, even if it means pretending that your, your wife isn't really dead before you go off to bury her. Um, so yeah, that seems excessive to us. And obviously it seems excessive to Heracles once he learns the truth. But it, it's not completely out of line in ancient Greek values. Um, and, and so 
we do see Euripides questioning that value. So it, our, you can see that he's moving away from that, that cult of Apollo he grew up in and that strong religion um, to say, wait, I, there's something wrong about behaving this way. You know, aren't, should we be allowed to mourn? Um, and so speaking of, of mourning, uh, the second theme I want to talk about is is liminality. And I know I've talked about liminality before. It's that state of in-between, in case you've forgotten. The title character of this play is Alcestis, and she spends the entire play in a liminal state. When we first see her, she is on the verge of death. And when we last see her, she is on the verge of life. And despite her lengthy death scene, we don't know how she really feels about her state. Having given herself up to death, how does she feel about having been brought back to life? We don't know. We will never know. The play ends before the three days are up and she is allowed to speak again. Uh, and that feature is what makes the ending of the play simultaneously happy. I mean, she's back. They, their family is reunited. But... But it's unsettling because, because she's, she's not able to, to tell us her feelings or her thoughts. Um, obviously, we can talk a lot more about who would be perfect to play Death or Heracles. Um, and I'd love to, love to hear your casting ideas. Um, and and, and what, what the character of Alcestis says about women, um, the whole gift of Apollo and its consequences, how much of a gift really is it? It's kind of a white elephant. Um, you know, there's so much, so much we can, we can look at. Um, the link to the blog, as always, is in the show notes. On Wednesday, we will go through book 20 of the Iliad. So we're closing in on the end. I'll talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.